Friends, let's uh, turn again to the book of Psalms, this time Psalm 19, the 19th Psalm. We'll read the 14 verses. A little later in the um, service, I'll be drawing your attention specifically to verses uh, 7 through 9. Um, so let us hear the word of God. As it's found in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tabernacle. For the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Friends, for our first reading from the New Testament this evening, turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of this chapter. Follows on, as you know, from chapter 11, that great uh, chapter detailing uh, the heroes of the faith. And in Hebrews 12, verse 1, we read, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For considering him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. 
For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Amen. So read God's word. We turn now to... uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, reading again as we read last week from verse 14 through to verse 17. Paul's second pastoral epistle to Timothy chapter 3 verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. Let's pray. Master, indeed, speak. For we, your servants, are waiting in anticipation for a word from yourself. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would arrest each of our hearts. Help us to gather up our thoughts of, uh, and powers of concentration and to center them upon you and your word and what you would say to us. We know we enter into a spiritual battle and Satan and his hordes will be active trying to distract. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we know we wrestle against, um, you know, spiritual powers, wickedness in high places. We wrestle against the, the weakness of our own flesh. And, Lord, we wrestle against the world. So much comes crushing in, crushing us on all sides. And yet, Lord, we, we need a fresh word from yourself tonight. Speaking to each of our hearts, challenging us for that is needed, rebuking, uh, instructing, correcting, Lord, Pray that all that is proclaimed tonight we would graciously receive from your hand. Pray for brothers in Christ who will be standing in the pulpits around the county this evening, those who are connected with the West Lanks Fellowship. Pray, Lord, that you would bless your word as it goes forth for our friends in Liverpool also. May you take your servants up and speak, uh, speak through them that they may proclaim your word saying, Thus and thus saith the Lord. Build the church of Jesus Christ to the glory of his name we ask it. Amen. 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 Well, it has taken longer than expected to get through these last verses of chapter 3, but a pause to consider these verses, even allowing for the Christmas break, has been necessary. We're still working through the second point of three points 
the first point, Scripture is sufficient for salvation. And the second point, Scripture is sufficient for transformation. So, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be transformed when you are taught, faithfully taught Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for teaching. As you're taught the Word of God, it should be uh, having a transforming effect upon your life. But as we noted last week, it doesn't just stop there because we don't always respond to the Word of God the way we ought to. The word then also has a ministry of reproof, and it has a ministry of correction. So we're transformed as we are reproved by Scripture, and secondly, we will be transformed when we are corrected. So picking up from last week, it then says Scripture is for instruction in righteousness, transformation again isn't it as you're instructed in righteousness and you're built up in righteousness you're being transformed instruction in righteousness what a marvelous thought this is the positive side of correction the word corrects you that's dealing with your sin and it instructs you that's the beginning of the input of righteousness Now, what does instruction in righteousness mean? Well, it's a a vital concept. It's a simple one to understand. Uh, The Greek word translated instruction is connected to the training or the instruction of a child. It has to do with educating children. The word is able to bring you up. That's what it means to, to nurture you. The word is able to to grow you, to to raise you, to bring you to maturity. And so can you see how this is the positive side? Dealing with our faults is half of the transforming work. Instructing us in what is right is the other half of the work. Now just to elaborate a little bit, the Greek word used here, Pidean, unlike the word um, epinorthosis, which we mentioned, didn't mention the word last week, just mentioned that word correct, uh, correction. That's the only time it's used, that Greek word is used uh, in the New Testament. It's only used once for correction here. Uh, Pidean, on the other hand, it's used uh, a number of times in the New Testament and always has to do with the idea of training. Um, <clears throat> building uh, someone up, the idea of training somebody, growing a child. Um, it, it does imply also the idea of chastening. In fact, its uh, use is found, you know, uh, mostly in Hebrews 12. That's why we read Hebrews 12. Uh, so if you turn back to that portion of Scripture just for a few moments and, and uh, see how the idea of uh, chastening is, is included here again. So Hebrews, Hebrews 12. I want to break in at verse 5. He says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening or the training process of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. 
So you see, reproof is a part of the training. <clears throat> Verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, note, scourging is a part of the training. So correction is implied in the chastening or the training. But there's a positive side. Remember we said last week there's a positive side. So verses 7 to 11, verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all of you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed, for a few days, chastened us, as seemed best to them. But he, talking of God, of course, but he for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his Holiness, take time to be holy, speak off of the Lord. We were singing about it earlier. And that's it, isn't it? Training onto holiness. Training in righteousness, it's the same idea. And so verse 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the writer of Hebrews is saying God puts every one of his children through a training process, instructing us in righteousness. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that that training process is basically the work of the word. It's the work of the word of God. It is the word of God that does the training. It's the word of God that builds you up. The word of God trains you properly. And that's why Paul uh, said to the Ephesian elders, wasn't it? Next 20, verse 32, he said, I commend to you uh, God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. That's why Paul in his first pastoral epistle to young Timothy says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, that Timothy was to be Nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine. You you see how it is this word that builds you up? This is your spiritual food. Matthew 4, verse 4, during the uh, temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness, he says to the evil one, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word. That proceeds from the mouth of God. And this is the Eupneustos, as we were saying. This is God's breathed out word. First Peter, uh, we have it in very clear terms. First uh, Peter 1, verse 23. Peter says, having been born again through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. We were saved through the word. There's absolutely no question about that, is there? And then you move into chapter 2, verse Peter 2, verse 2. Uh, he says, as newborn babes 
desire the pure, the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. And so do you see, friends, how our growth, our training, our maturing is based on the word. And just like a wee baby grows as it, as it eats, uh, you grow because you eat. You feed in the spiritual food like a baby needs milk. You need the word of God. And that's a very simple concept, isn't it? What it's saying is that the, the way babies long for milk, you should be longing for the word. And you, you know that that is the, the baby's strongest, it's his, the baby's single desire. You know, it wants more milk. They, they will scream for, for milk. And uh, that's basically it. You know, they live for that. And that's what, what Peter is saying. That's what Paul is saying. In the same way that a baby is so singularly focused on the need for milk. So you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be singularly focused on the need for the word of God. Just like a newborn baby, you need what? You need the word. It's the source of our growth. It's not rocket science, is it? It's not, uh, it's not mystical. You know, the time that you spend every day of your life reading God's word is making you stronger as a believer. Now, you may not perceive it, may not even recognize it, but it is your spiritual food and it's your nourishment and it's finding a place in your mind and it's nourishing your spirit. And so every day we want to be feeding on the Lord Jesus Christ, looking for him in the Bible, wanting to follow in his footsteps. And when you read the Bible and you feed upon the word of God, notice what the word will do. Now, this is why we read from Psalm 19. So you flick back to Psalm 19 and we will see what the word actually does. Now, I'm not going to expound this. I'm just going to highlight it to you. Hopefully, you'll be able to follow it as you look at verses 7 to 9. So, what will the word do? According to Psalm 19, verses 7, you see it there through 9. The psalmist refers to Scripture as, verse 7, the law of the Lord the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, obviously referring to worship, the judgments of the Lord. And so you're following along, you will see there, there are six titles for Scripture. And so you can look at Scripture as God's law as his testimony of himself, as statutes or precepts for living, as commandments to be obeyed, as instruction on worship, or as verdicts from the divine bench, 
but it is all his word. Authoritative, true, inerrant, infallible. And what is its character? Well, look at it again from verse 7. It's perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. It's true. And what will it do for you? Look at it again from verse 7. It will restore or convert your soul. It will make you wise. It will rejoice your heart. It will enlighten your eyes. It will endure forever. That means it will be relevant for every age. And we are told it will produce comprehensive righteousness. That, friends, is the sufficiency of the word. It is sufficient to transform us. That's what it will do in your life as you feed upon it. The word then trains us in righteousness and in holiness, holy living. And what does that mean? Well, it means right things, right behavior, right conduct, right thinking, right action, right words. The power and the effect of the word is tremendous. The word is sufficient, as we saw from our first point for salvation, if you remember that far back. The word is sufficient for transformation once we have come to a knowledge of salvation. Are you transformed? You are transformed through doctrine. You're transformed through reproof. You're transformed through correction. The word is able to pick up the pieces, as we were saying last week. You know, when you're torn apart, sitting under the word of God, well, the word is able to pick you up, and it's able to rebuild you and also to train you in Christ's likeness and holiness and righteousness. That, beloved, is the power of the word. And how successful is it? Well, back to Second uh, Timothy chapter 3. And look at verse 17. This is how successful it is. It is so successful that the man of God or the woman of God in whom the word of God works may be complete. You see it there in verse 17. Thoroughly equipped for every, not most, but for every good work. And so, beloved, when I say the scripture is comprehensively sufficient, that is exactly what I mean. What else can you be but complete? And what else can you do but every good work? Well, you see, there's nothing left out. You know, when someone or anyone would come along and uh, try to tell you that the Bible is not adequate, We try to tell you that the Bible is insufficient. We try to tell you maybe that the Bible doesn't tell us all that we need to know. So we need further revelation, some further writings from, you know, some spiritual guru. Or we maybe need insights from the world of psychology, sociology, philosophy in order to complete our Christian pilgrimage. 
Well, don't you believe it, beloved, because it's all here in this book. It's sufficient. And more than anything else, if we are to be spiritually noble like the Bereans in the book of Acts, we must, it's imperative, isn't it? We must search the scriptures daily. Why? For therein lies our spiritual food. And therein lies the tool with which God refines us to the place of maximum usefulness. On one one occasion, uh, J.I. Packer said, you know, if I were the devil, one of my first aims would be to stop folk digging into the Bible. Why? Have you stopped digging into the Bible? Is Satan got a foothold and is he winning the truth is beloved we should be like Mary in Luke 10 39 who sat at Jesus feet and heard his word if there's anything we need to commit our heart to it would be that no day would pass when we didn't spend time feeding our souls in the word of the living God that we might become all that he wants us to be. You know, friends, we we are no different than every congregation. You know, some of us need doctrine. Some don't have the the principles. Uh, You don't know how to live the Christian life to its fullest. So doctrine will help you in that. Some haven't learned the word of God to the extent that you know true doctrine and what true doctrine is. We're all a work in progress, as we often say, and we often acknowledge we are learning every single day. You know, if someone stands in the pulpit and says nice things and says, You know, you need to come to Jesus without an explanation as to why you need to come to Jesus without mentioning sin or repentance. And you think that simple appeal to come to Jesus is a clear gospel message? Well, you need to get back to basics. Or if you don't need to get back to basics, maybe it's just that when somebody says come to Jesus, you're filtering into that all that you already know about coming to Jesus. But it's always, always important to be listening to the word as it's preached and not just filtering what you know to be true, but saying, is the preacher actually saying that? And if he's not actually saying that, then you have to say, well, why not? Are there some other things going on that I'm not aware of? You know, if someone speaks from a a passage on holiness without explaining what holiness is, why you need it, you think that's a great sermon, again, it's a matter of getting back to basics. Or just stop filtering what you know about holiness and understand about holiness, what you've taught about holiness over the years, 
I'd be saying, well, why has the preacher not mentioned that? Like every congregation, some of us would need to have the piercing word of the word reprove sin in our lives and to begin to do its work of correcting that sin and instructing us so that we become mature in Christ, able to be, as I say, what he wants us to be. By God's grace, we will continue to study this book. It's central to what we believe here at Autumn Park. There's really nothing else uh, that, that we, can, we can do other than come to this, to this word. You know, uh, that we live in, a, in an age of overindulgence. We live in a day when you're literally blasted and bombarded with so much information, so much that it's a day of information, isn't it? And not intimacy. You know, people want to know stuff. They don't really want or care about relationships. And that might even be applied somewhat in the spiritual dimension. You know, we have accumulated a tremendous amount of knowledge. And maybe in many ways that accumulation of information has substituted intimacy with God. And you could sit and say, you know, Billy, that just sounds like a hunch. You know, do you base that on anything? Well, I would say, friends, only on the fact that I know many Christians aren't hungering and thirsting for God. Not to the extent that the soul longs for God as this As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. We were singing it. I don't see that in in talking about the church in its wider sense. I don't see that among many Christians. And that's what I'm basing my hunch on, if you think it was a hunch. People not hungering for God in a dry and thirsty land. What Christians have been doing is feeding on junk food. They're nourishing themselves on the spiritual equivalent of Mars bars, pizzas, and Coke. They're not hungry for the pure word of God that God sets before them in this book. And beloved, isn't that tragic? What can be done about the apathy and the indifference in the church of Jesus Christ? What can be done about that? I guess on one level we can wait till it goes away, hope and continue and pray for a better day because it's obvious that people have so much information on their laptops or iPads or their phones, so much junk, so much spiritual garbage coming in from the world all around them And they feed themselves on junk food to the extent that they have lost their appetite for the word of God. And when you say, you know, to a group of people, sometimes you want to teach the word of God, they just go, 
I don't want the word. It wasn't always that way, beloved. It won't always be that way. Because the Lord somehow, in some way, by his grace, if Jesus tarries, will restore the appetite of of God's people for God's truth. But nonetheless, we continue to do what's right. I mean, there are lots of ways to get a crowd. You know, the primary one is not teach the Bible. But we recoil at horror at that thought, don't we? And that getting at yourselves as a congregation, hopefully you understand that. You know, God bless you people for the appetite that you have for the word of God. You know, from John Beatty's time to follow Hall's time to the time that I've had with yourselves, you are a people who hunger for this book. And I hope it goes beyond today. I hope you still have it tomorrow when the day begins. And I pray that your heart is hungering for this book to the extent that it wants to reach out and you want to spend time in this book before you start your day because this is the word that is sufficient for transforming you. And you will never be transformed if you neglect this precious word. Which brings us nicely to our third point. The word is sufficient for proclamation. All I'm going to do is introduce this for the next few minutes, and then we'll come back to it next week. But Paul goes in straight into chapter 4, if you have your Bibles before you. And he says in verses 1 and 2, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Timothy, he says, I want you to preach the word. It's a very stirring charge that he gives this young pastor. Jesus is going to appear, he says. His kingdom is going to be ushered in in all of its fullness. Men and women are going to face judgment. Therefore, in the light of all of these truths, I give you this charge, he says, you make sure you preach the word. I remember this is Paul Swanson. This is his last letter. If you and I were writing a last letter to somebody, wouldn't you want to put in that letter the things that were most pressingly urgent in your mind? You know, you wouldn't fill it up with trivialities. You would want to ensure that whoever it was that was receiving your last letter, that they were in the end, the end of information that would uh, enable them to see that, um, you know, they got to grasp the nettle here that's being conveyed to them. They, they got to see the urgency of this. And as Paul moves into this final section of the letter, he says, in the light of all that is about to unfold. And in light of all of the confusion that you're facing, remember when we introduced this, we said the church of Jesus Christ in Asia basically had fallen away. It looked like it was curtains for Christianity, uh, that it would fizzle out by the end of the first century. 
And Paul is saying, in light of all the confusion you're facing, and in the light of all the temptations that are before you, Timothy, as a young man, as a young believer, as a young pastor, you know, with the, the passion that you have for the gospel and the power that God has endued you with, you, you make sure that you devote yourself to preaching the word of God. Why? Because it is sufficient for proclamation. It's sufficient not only to see people equipped and to see them saved and transformed, but it's sufficient for the building up of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said, you know, a few moments ago, you can uh, raise a crowd by all kinds of means. But the building of the church of Jesus Christ is something that God does himself. And those who have been called to the privilege of preaching have been called to a high task. And it's the word that we are supposed to proclaim. It's referred to as sound doctrine in verse 3. It's referred to as the truth in verse 4. It's referred to as the faith. In verse 7, here's Jim Packer again. Christian preaching is, quote, the offense of God bringing to a congregation a Bible-based, Christ-related, life-impacting message of instruction and direction from God himself through the words of a spokesman. Now, if you believe Packer's statement to be true, then, beloved, every single week we should be sitting up and expectantly praying, Master, speak, for thy servant heareth, waiting for thy gracious word. When we use this, beloved, as a standard, it becomes obvious very quickly that the spirit of Expectancy is missing, you know, from many a gathering. God speaks through his word. So many congregations, instead of heading for worship and the expectation that they're going to hear a word from on high, a word from God, and they're going to be given an opportunity, you know, to give him praise and to hear him speak, the average congregation sits back, relaxed, they want to see if anything that the preacher has to say is going to tickle their ears. And as a result of that, there is no sense of the accompanying power of the Spirit of God. No unction from on high. There's no sense of the arresting of the Spirit of God in the lives of individuals. There is no experience of being cut to the heart to the extent where people are crying out, men and brethren, what must we do? At the very heart of it, the missing element, a conviction regarding the absolute sufficiency of this wonderful, wonderful book. And so he says, I want you to be prepared to do what you're supposed to do, Timothy, when you're supposed to do it, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have uh, itching ears, they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Terribly relevant, isn't it? So contemporary. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, people will not choose churches on the basis of truth. They won't listen to a preacher and then decide whether they what they have heard is true or not. They'll first decide what they want to hear and then they'll go and select the teacher who will oblige by towing the party line and tickle their ears. That's verse 3, isn't it? They gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. It's uh, Fleetwood Mac. Tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. That's all it is. They want lies. And when people stop, as you know, it's been said before, when people stop believing the Bible, they don't believe in nothing. They start believing in everything. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and they'll turn aside to myths. So, beloved, what, what do we need to do? We need to get down on our knees. We need to ask God to fill our hearts with a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts with a love for his word. And get down on our knees and let's stay on our knees until he, fulfill, until he fills us with passion. Until he hears our prayer. Till he fills us uh, with a passion concerning the absolute sufficiency of this marvelous book. Stay on our knees. God speaks. And then let's take all of these wonderful, wonderful doctrines and this wonderful message out there to all those lonely people whose lives are broken due to sin.